image on the wall that Linda has chosen, of course, is uh, a very famous painting by J.M.W. Turner. It's a snowstorm, a steamboat uh, off the harbour mouth. And um, it's, uh, it's painted in 1842, and it's one of his many famous paintings. Um, there's an apocryphal story about Turner that he, was, he got himself tied to a mast of a ship in a storm and uh, in, in, in order that he could really understand what it would be like to be in the middle of a storm. Apparently, it's, it's a great story, but apparently it's apocryphal. Um, but uh, but it, it sort of fits because Turner's work is so extraordinarily intense. And even though uh, it was derided when it was first uh, displayed at the Royal Academy, um, because it just didn't fit the times. Uh, but what's interesting, of course, is that it's the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And this is a steamboat. So you can see the steam rising out of the funnel. And apparently the white streaks are the shooting off of flares uh, because the boat is in distress. And you can just see the light glinting off the struts of the paddle for the, because it was a paddle steamer. And um, it really does question whether or not the Industrial Revolution, which was supposed to give us total mastery over all of the world and nature, you wonder whether Turner might be questioning that uh, as this boat is... is uh, is in distress, but it's a great image, isn't it, for Storm Sunday as part of the season of creation. I think we cannot understand this text that we've just been struggling to read and make sense of. Not that you were struggling to read it, Linda, but that we were struggling to grasp it. Uh, but you can't understand it unless we understand that the whole of Luke's Gospel is is about an explanation of what Jesus says when he goes to the first synagogue in Luke chapter 4 and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, the part of the uh, mission of the Corn Uniting Church. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, uh, to release the captives, to bring sight to the blind, uh, and to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You can almost see these as like PowerPoint slides of Jesus' entire project. That, uh, you know, a PowerPoint slide goes up and it gives you the headline and then the speaker goes into all of the detail of what that headline means. And that's what Jesus is doing all the way through the Gospel. Everything Jesus does and says fits this proclamation. Right from the very beginning in chapter 2, where we've got angels, so even before Jesus announces this, we've got angels saying, this is good news for all the people, announcing it to the shepherds. It's all about this same thing. So we've got to figure out where does the story about a rich man and his manager and Jesus' comments on that story, his sort of editorialising on it, where do they fit in this big story about good news and release of captives? A few background things. In the first century... There was a sense that, the, that they lived in, in what now sociologists call a limited goods culture. That is, there's only a certain size pie, and if I've got more than you've got, then the reason I've got more is because you've got less. Because there's, not, there's only so much to go around. So the rich get rich on the backs of the poor. That was the understanding. Every time one person profits, another one loses. So a rich man is making his money off the backs of the poor. That's the first thing to know. The second thing to know is that the Jews 
were not allowed to charge each other interest. Nor were they, when they lent money, nor were they allowed to charge the poor interest. It's all the way through the Hebrew scriptures in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. So here we've got a story of a rich man who's rich. That's the first story. So he's rich because he's made others poor in the first century understanding of riches in a limited goods culture. And the second thing is he's charging interest. It's dishonest wealth. Jesus says it twice in his editorialising on it. It's dishonest wealth. And we often want to try and figure out, well, who's who in this story? And in lots of the stories of, of, uh, that Jesus tells, we're trying to figure out which one's God and which one's Jesus. Whoops, knocked over the reins. No, don't be. They're so beautiful, aren't they? Such a beautiful sound. Which one's God? Which one's Jesus? How does it all fit together? What if we saw in this story... The manager as doing exactly what Jesus said he was doing. Good news to the poor and release to the captives. He goes about releasing the poor from their dependence on the rich man. Because they're living in, the, in what indigenous Australians have experienced many times in colonial history. What we often call the company store trap. That is, we won't pay you cash we will give you credit against the goods that you need from the company store and it turns out that the goods you need just happen to be the exact amount of money that you have earned and so you're constantly in trouble you never get any cash you just get goods and you don't know whether they're worth what you think they're worth or worth what the manager what the owner says they're worth it's a it's a constant trap and these people are caught in this trap because the things that the, the manager says they should be forgiven their debt on are the essentials of life. Wheat and oil, these are not luxury items. These are not a Rolex watch. They're the things that without them, everyone starves. And they're the essentials that if the world hadn't become the way it is in the first century in this moment, full of agribusinesses that have agglomerated the poor's land into these big places where they must work to the company's store. If they hadn't done that, they'd be on their own land. They'd be growing their own wheat and pressing their own oil. What the manager's doing is enacting the year of the Lord's favour that Jesus talks about in Luke. And most scholars think that what Jesus is saying here is a reminder of this great idea that the Jews believe they got from God back in the Hebrew Scriptures, that every 50 years, all debt should be forgiven. Everything should go back the way it was. All debt should be forgiven. Now, given the culture we're living in at the moment where your home loan or your rent, because you're living in somebody else's house that they have a home loan on, could go up by another $500 a month in the next two months. We're pretty keen on the idea of debt forgiveness. Now, scholars think that not many times in Jewish history did it happen, if it ever happened at all. But it was a great shining hope. This was the great ideal. This is the world as it ought to be. So the year of the Lord's favour is 
most generally understood to be an allusion to this idea of the 50 years, every 50 years debt-free, the year of Jubilee. So the manager is actually forgiving debt. He's actually doing what Jesus says he'd come to do. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against the manager that this man was squandering the rich man's property. The way it's written in the Greek, apparently I'm not a Greek scholar by even any stretch of the imagination, but it's the idea that they're not formal charges brought to a law, they're rumours that a rich man hears from his friends, who are presumably rich, that somebody who is employed, or more likely a slave of the rich man, is squandering his wealth. Well, of course he's squandering it because he's giving it back to the poor. And if you're rich, that sounds like squandering to me. It's my money. I've figured out a way of earning it and keeping it. And this, this guy's gone crazy. He's, he's a communist or a socialist. Of course he's squandering it. And the, man, the manager later, uh, the, the, the rich man later, commends the, quote, dishonest servant. Of course the rich man calls him dishonest because attack is the best form of defence. The idea that somebody would be doing what turns out to be the right thing, what turns out to be what they're called to do, not to charge interest and to release people from debt. That's the wrong thing. The world's going to go crazy if the rich can't keep their riches. Attack is the best form of defence. We've had an exemplar of that in the work of Donald Trump, who continues to be attack is the best form of defence. But then Jesus goes on and says a whole bunch of strange things all seem to focus around the idea of faithfulness. And of course to be faithful is to be constant and true to something or to someone. So why does Jesus talk about faithfulness here? Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. I think in Jesus' way of seeing the world, the very little in which somebody could be either faithful or dishonest in is riches. Riches is not having enough, it's having too much. It's being like the man who built barns because he had so much in Luke 12, which we dealt with earlier. He had so much money, so much stuff, that he had to build more barns to look after it. I've got so many cars, I need to build a bigger garage to look after them. That's what riches are. It's having too much. It's living like the rich fool, which Jesus called the, the rich man who built these barns. Because it's the idea that the riches will be able to affect the purpose and meaning and length of your life, which we know is complete nonsense. It's to live dishonestly. It's to live as if that were true. Because riches promise a huge amount and deliver very little. When you figure out what it is important to you to be happy, turns out money has a lot to do with it if you haven't got enough, but not much to do with it if you've got too much. In fact, it becomes a worry. If you've got so much money that it's invested, you worry about the interest rate 
Or you worry about your shares. Or you worry about your property. So you build a bigger wall around it. Riches is having too much. But Jesus calls that very little. But if you're honest with very little and just say, well, money is just money. We need it to live. But that's all we need. If you're dishonest with what riches can do for you, you'll also be dishonest about the great things of life. If you're dishonest in little, you'll be dishonest in much. And much, according to Jesus, is that life is a gift. Enough is enough. That's the very little. Consider the ravens, the birds of the air. They have neither storehouses nor barns. Jesus says this after talking about the rich man who builds his barns. And yet they've got enough because God feeds them. To be faithful in little is to be constant about the smallness of money, the limited nature of its value to us. Yes, we need it. And those of us here who've not got enough, we need it. And we shouldn't be ashamed that we need it. We need it. But it only does so much. It feeds us and it houses us and it clothes us. And to the extent that we are able to do that, we should rejoice. But that's all it can do. To be faithful in much is to be faithful to the fact that your life has been given to you as a gift. That's the good news of debt forgiveness that Jesus is talking about here. You have been forgiven all your debts. You have been forgiven things that you didn't even know that you've done that are terrible to other people. You have hurt other people in ways that you don't even know you have because you've been alive. That's just how we are. But all of that is forgiven. Not just that list of things that you know about, that you worry about late at night. To be honest in much, and we haven't got time to go into all of the other things Jesus says here, but in, in about faithfulness. But to be honest in much is to be honest in the great truth of our lives, which is a gift. Leslie Newbigin was a, a missiologist who lived in India and wrote enormous number of wonderful books. And in one of them, he says that faith that being connected to God is like waking up one morning out on the moors in front of a fire with some fish cooking on it. And you wake up and you look down and you realise that you're in prison uniform. And the reason you're in prison uniform is because you're a prisoner and you've been in jail for a long, long time. But here you are out on the moor. You're not in jail. You don't know how it happened, you're just not. And way off in the distance, in the mist, you can see the walls of the prison. But here you are, still in prison uniform, but waking up in front of a warm fire with fish cooking on it. That, you Newbigin says, is the story of faith. What is our response? Well, Newbigin says two things. One, eat the fish. Rejoice, and the other is laugh because it's an extraordinary thing that has happened to you. It's an extraordinary thing that it happens to you, as the Catholics remind us, every day. We, we are converted every day. Every day this is happening to you. 
And you look down at you. I know I'm still wearing the uniform. I get it. I know I still act like I'm in prison. But I'm not. It's way off in the distance. I'm here. How did I get here? But it was a gift. I just woke up here, alive, full of life, fully human, loved by God. And laughing with joy, Newbigin says. Or as C.S. Lewis says in his autobiographies, the title of his autobiography, surprised by joy. Amen.